Well, if I'm looking at the clock correctly, based on our service last week, I have about an hour to preach. I would never subject myself to that, and I would never subject you to that. So I'm just kidding, especially if you're a visitor. I promise I'm kidding. But in all seriousness, I do want to thank Eric Roseberry. He came and preached last week. Izzy Wignall, he came and led worship last week. And then Bob Larson came and filled us in on all that God is doing at Pine Haven, just the incredible life change that is happening there. And we are very, very blessed to have them last week. I want to thank them. And then we're also very blessed to have David and Melissa, as Joshua shared earlier. As we look for our full-time minister of youth and worship, we have had a lot of people step up to the plate and fill the gap during this time of transition, and we have been very, very blessed. God has provided people after people after people, and David and Melissa are just more people on that list that God has used to lead us here and worship at Prairie View during this time of transition. So we're very thankful for them and thankful for everyone else as well. Now with that, last week Eric said something about how It's really difficult for him as a guest preacher to come in and preach on murder and how I gave him a tough topic. And he's right. I did give him a tough topic. That's a tough sermon to preach to any congregation, even if you're there every single week, much less if you're a guest. But this sermon today should be proof that I don't give away all the difficult sermons. There are some sermons that I do preach that are a little bit controversial, and this might be one of them, because we get to the seventh commandment in our Ten Commandments series. And this is where we get to two of the most sensitive and emotional and delicate topics that you can possibly imagine, those topics of sex and marriage. We talked about how the first four commandments mainly focus on our relationship with God and how people say, well, the first four are about our relationship with God and the last six are about our relationship with other people. But we also talked about the fact that you can't just neatly separate those two things. They bounce off of one another. Our relationship with God should naturally affect the way that we relate to other people. And the way that we relate to other people should be an indicator of where we are in our relationship with God. But as we talk about this commandment, the seventh commandment, we talk about one of the most intimate relationships that you can possibly imagine. The relationship between husband and wife. The relationship between two people who have entered into a bond that you can't just simply break. And there is a ton to be said here. There's a ton to be said about sexual ethics. There's a ton to be said about marriage. There's a ton to be said about relationships. And we're not going to be able to hit on all of it. And so we're going to try to stay focused on the main idea of the seventh commandment. And that idea is adultery. Now, before we get started in that, we also have to admit that we live in a world where sex and marriage, that's one of the biggest hot-button issues that you can possibly imagine. That's one of those topics that you don't bring up when you go to a party and you're trying to make conversation with people because you have no idea where that conversation could lead. And it's one of those things that so many people disagree on today. And there are so many aspects of this idea of sex and marriage that we don't see eye to eye on. And we don't agree about what should be acceptable and what shouldn't be acceptable. What's acceptable in society and what's unacceptable. What's acceptable in the church and what's unacceptable in the church. A few of those topics, homosexuality. It's been in the news recently. We often debate about whether or not that is an acceptable practice for relationships within our society, for one person of the same sex to love or have sexual relationships with someone of the same sex 
as well. We talk about that in our society. We talk about that in the church. Should it be accepted? Should it not be accepted? We then talk about gay marriage, which is in itself a somewhat different question. You know, there are a lot of things out there that the church would say is sinful, that we do not condone as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we do not believe is compatible with Christian teaching, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it should be illegal. There are things out there that Christians would say, yes, that is sin, but we don't see Christians picketing or protesting to make those things illegal. So that's another question. Where should Christians stand on that? Where should society stand on the legalization of gay marriage? There's also the topic of cohabitation or sex before marriage. Is that acceptable in society or is that acceptable within the church? I remember when Olivia and I were engaged, I was listening to the radio and I heard a big time radio host say, if you marry someone that you haven't lived with before, you're an idiot. Those were the exact words. You're an idiot. Because you have no idea if you're going to have the kind of chemistry that you need to really make a relationship last long term. You have no idea if you're going to be compatible living with one another day in and day out and seeing all of each other's flaws and all of each other's faults. So there's all this disagreement about sex. What is it? What does it mean? There's all this disagreement about marriage. What is it and what does it mean? But that being said... Even in this world where there is so much confusion and so much disagreement, there are some things that most people can agree on. We're not always as different as you might think we are. We pretty much all agree that rape is never acceptable. We pretty much all agree that sex offenses against children never acceptable. Sex slavery, forcing someone into sex against their will to make some kind of profit, unacceptable. Prostitution unacceptable. So while there may be things that we disagree on, there are things that we do agree on pretty much across the board. Of course, there are exceptions. But even with that, even with the disagreement, even with the agreement, the truth remains that there are a lot of people out there in our world and in our society who do not have a biblical understanding of what sex is all about and what marriage is all about. And many of those people who don't have that biblical understanding, they're Christians. And yet they don't have that understanding. So I would propose to you that if we're going to do what God calls us to do, and that's to shine out as lights in the world around us, the way the Israelites would if they obeyed the Ten Commandments, the way they would stick out like a sore thumb, if we're going to do that in today's world as followers of Jesus, as God's people in the present then we better know what it is that Scripture says about these sensitive, controversial topics. And we better know what God expects of our lives when it comes to sex and our lives when it comes to marriage if we're going to be that shining light. So with that, open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. That's going to bring us to our seventh commandment. We're going to be in verse 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, use one of our Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, and we also have Bibles on the welcome desk if you're a visitor and if you don't own one, because we want you to leave with a Bible. So with that, before we actually dig into Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we're talking about an issue today that is more than just an issue. It's not just a topic. It's not just theological banter. It's people. Many of us have been burned 
by adultery in one way or another. We've been the victim of it. Maybe we've been the perpetrator of it. And we live saddled with guilt and condemnation from seemingly everyone. Maybe we've seen the damage that it can cause with our parents or our friends or other members of our family. And so, God, I know this is a hard topic to discuss, but I pray that we can talk openly this morning, that we can talk honestly, and more than anything, we can see what your word says and that we can put our full trust in that. God, we all have different experiences with this topic, but I pray that you'll speak to us in whatever way that we need to be spoken to this morning, that your word will do that, that your spirit will do that. And that we can leave here more informed of what scripture says about this and what it is that you care about when it comes to sex and when it comes to marriage and what it is that we should care about as your people. So, God, we love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Only five words. You shall not commit adultery. Now, as we've talked about, pretty much all the commandments are pretty straightforward and pretty clear. But this past week, as I was looking at this verse, I found myself asking the question, okay, if this is God reintroducing himself to his people, these are people who have been in oppression, people who have been in slavery, people who have heard that God spoke to their forefathers, that God spoke to their ancestors, but they haven't really heard a lot from him. This is God reintroducing himself to them, and God chooses ten things to say. Why is it that this would be in the top ten? Of all the things that God could say, of all the things that God wants to stress to his people, of all the things that he wants to show them about who he is and who he wants them to be as his nation, why would he choose this? Well, marriage matters to God. It's that simple. Marriage matters to God. That's why he would mention adultery. Now, in this context, adultery was pretty synonymous with what we would refer to today as cheating. And throughout Scripture, it's pretty much always looked down upon, whether it's husband or wife, male or female, whatever. Adultery was not acceptable. It was not looked highly upon. But that being said, even with that and even with a command like this that seems so clear, there was confusion. Remember how he talked about with the Sabbath, how the Sabbath command seemed so clear at first, but then as time goes on, gray areas start to pop up. People begin to try and cut corners. They ask the question of, well, what exactly constitutes work? How can we keep the Sabbath and yet still get as much done as we possibly can? What about this extenuating circumstance? Or what about that extenuating circumstance? Does the Sabbath apply then? Do we break the Sabbath? Does this count as work? Does this not count as work? What do we do? Well, the same thing seems to happen with this commandment about adultery. Over time, people begin to miss the forest because they're looking at the trees. And double standards start to develop, where the punishment for a woman committing adultery could often be greater than the punishment for a man committing adultery. It was regularly common for a man who commits adultery, who cheats on his spouse that he has made this covenant with, this spiritual and physical covenant, he would cheat on her. And if he got caught, then, well, what you could often do is just take that woman as a second wife and we'll pretty much call it all even. Nothing to really worry about. But women may not have had 
that luxury. Double standards start to develop. The view of divorce starts to become a little bit more lax in the Old Testament as time goes on. And we see that with the attitude the Pharisees have as they talk to Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. They carry on this tradition. Actually, verses 2 through 9, not verses 2 through 5. We see this confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus, and we read this. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, if you remember, Moses is the guy who's communicating with God and getting these Ten Commandments from God and then delivering them to the people. So these Pharisees citing Moses, that's particularly relevant to what we're talking about this morning. Verse five. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus talks to the Pharisees. And they ask him this question, Jesus, what do we do with divorce? Because supposedly God hates it, but Moses says there are some circumstances where it's allowable. What do we do with this? What do you have to say about this, you up-and-coming Jesus rabbi guy? What are your thoughts on this? Well, Jesus' response is, guys, you're pretty much missing the point. You're kind of asking the wrong question here. Jesus says it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed this commandment. This idea of divorce was never the ideal. And if you're sitting back and asking the question of, okay, well, what's the bare minimum that my spouse has to do in order for me to divorce them and get off scot-free and technically not do anything wrong? Jesus says if that's the question that you're asking, then you're asking the wrong question. And you're missing the whole point entirely because the main point that you need to remember goes way, way, way back to Genesis chapter two, verse 24. That's the passage that Jesus cites. And he adds his own commentary there at the end. And he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus makes it clear. If you want to know what God expects of marriage, if you want to know where divorce fits into the picture, look to the original design of marriage. And the design is this. One man, one woman for life. Two sexes, which physically, emotionally, spiritually complement one another, committed to one another alone, and a covenant that is unlike any other relationship that you will ever have. That's what you need to be thinking about. When you're asking these questions about sex and about marriage and about adultery and about divorce, that's where you need to look, because that is God's ideal from the very beginning. Now, there's another important passage about marriage in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 22. Paul kind of adds some flesh to these bare bones design of marriage. Look at Ephesians 5:22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything 
to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So Paul adds on to it and he says, it's very important that you know that marriage is one man, one woman for life. But there's more to it than that. There's the idea of the wife submitting to her husband, which, of course, is the assumption that the husband is fulfilling the role that he is called to fulfill. That's assuming that the husband is doing what he is called to do, to be the spiritual leader of his spouse, to be the spiritual leader of his kids, the spiritual leader of his home. And so, men, that's a challenge for us. We are called to be the spiritual leaders of our families, of our spouses. And yet, if you're anything like me, you struggle with that a whole lot, more than you might like to admit. And the whole idea of wives submit to your husbands is based on that assumption. We then see the husband is called to be willing to give up his life for his wife, the same way the Christ gave up his life for the church. Think about that. Husbands, are we willing, would we be willing to be crucified for our wives? Because that's what Paul is saying. It's spouses giving up their own selfish desires for the sake of that other spouse experiencing God's grace and God's kindness and the love of Christ in ways that they have never experienced it before. No matter what that means, I have to give up. And it's spouses spurring on their partner to continual spiritual growth, day in and day out, whatever that may cost us. The point is that marriage matters to God. The original design matters to God. The relationship where each spouse is giving up their own rights for the best interest of the other, that matters to God. Because this covenant that husband and wife enter into, this is meant to be a covenant that reflects the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to his own people. But not only does marriage matter to God, sex matters to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, Paul talks about the significance of of a person uniting their body with a prostitute. The significance of having sex with someone who is not your spouse. And Paul's whole idea is that, people, this is a big deal. This is not just some physical act. There is a spiritual reality to sex. It plays an intricate role in the process of two flesh becoming one flesh. It's a bond that is not just something you do for fun. It's not just something you do for pleasure. It's not just something you do with someone because you want your relationship to take the next level. It's not what you do to make you feel mature. It's not what you do to just make your bond feel a little bit stronger. There is a spiritual aspect here because it's not just a physical act. And that eliminates the idea in our culture of consequence-free sex. There is no such thing as consequence-free sex, if you read scripture. And whether it leads to kids or not, sex between two spouses and the covenant of marriage, male and female, dedicated to one another and dedicated to God, that is meant to be a God-glorifying and beautiful and God-honoring thing. 
Sex matters to God, and that's exactly why God says, do it in the covenant of marriage. One man, one woman in marriage. That's where sex is meant to happen. Nowhere else. So marriage is not just anything our culture says it is. It's not just an outdated institution. It's not just a piece of paper. It's not just a tax break. It is the design for male and female from the beginning. And sex is not just a physical act. It is the uniting of two people to become one flesh, complementing one another in every single way. Now, if you're married, you may be thinking, all right, I get it. Thanks for the reminder. My marriage is important. Sex is important. Sometimes we take that for granted in the day in and day out of everyday life. But I would never actually go through with the sin we're talking about today. I would never actually go through with committing adultery. I know that sometimes I take my marriage for granted, but I don't take it that much for granted. And if you're single, you might be thinking, you know what? I do need to really think about what marriage is if and when I ever choose to make that covenant with someone else. I need to be aware of the importance of sex and make sure that if that's going to occur, that it is done in the context of marriage. But here's the thing. Like the rest of the Ten Commandments, this one goes deeper than just physical surface level. We've talked about that with all the other ones. It's not just as simple as keeping the rules. The Ten Commandments are not just a list of rules. And it's not just about doing the bare minimum to get by and cut corners without technically doing anything wrong. Remember last week when Eric talked about murder? And Eric showed us from 1 John that the whole idea of murder is not just the actual physical act of going through with it and actually killing someone. It goes a lot deeper than that. And 1 John equates murder with hatred, with storing up bitterness, with storing up jealousy, with a desire to get revenge on someone who has wronged you. It's a matter of the heart. It's not just a matter of actually killing someone. Well, adultery, it's an issue of the heart, too, at its core. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. This is one of the most challenging verses where Jesus specifically addresses the topic of adultery. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, and that's referring to this commandment, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Think about what Jesus just said. Because sometimes we have this stereotype and we have this view of the Old Testament and this view of the New Testament where we say, you know, the Old Testament, that's all about rules. It's all about burdens. It's just strict. And Jesus is just way cooler than that. Jesus is a way more laid back, cool, chill guy. And he would never take the kind of stance that the Old Testament takes because that's just not Jesus's thing. That's not really his style. That's not his M.O., Especially with all the grace and peace and love and holding lambs and welcoming children, Jesus would never take a stand like that. Well, the truth is that Jesus takes this commandment and without contradicting it, he strengthens it. He beefs it up. He makes the commandment a little bit harder. Because he says, hey, everyone, you know, you've understood don't commit adultery as in don't actually go through with cheating on your spouse. But here's the thing. The second you lust after someone in your heart, 
you've already committed adultery. It's not just a sin of the eyes or a sin of the mind or a sin of the body. It goes so much deeper than that. It's not about not going through with it and then letting your eyes or your mind or your heart wander as long as you don't actually take the plunge. You know, I don't know about you, but that's pretty scary when you really read that for what it is. It's an issue of the heart, and every single one of us has that sin living in our heart. You know, earlier in church history, you don't really see it a whole lot today, but it was really common for really, really holy people, people who were saints, people who were sometimes referred to as the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers, they were people who wanted so badly to refrain from sin, wanted so badly to avoid sin, avoid temptation, that their strategy was that, well, you know what, we're just going to go to the desert, and we're going to live in a cave, and we're not going to interact with anybody. That way we can avoid sin. We can make sure that we don't do anything wrong. We're going to completely isolate ourselves from any temptation. So many of these desert fathers, they struggled with lust. And their thought was, well, if I move into a cave and I never see a woman again, then maybe I won't struggle with that anymore. So they did just that. But many of the desert fathers recorded that even after 10 or 20 or 30 years without laying eyes on a woman, they would still struggle with lust, even after all those years. It wasn't just a sin of the eyes. It wasn't just a sin of the mind. It wasn't just a sin of the body. It was a sin of the heart. And that is concerning for every single one of us, knowing that our hearts, they're pretty much the same. Every single one of our hearts is prone to sin, is prone to lust, is prone to temptation. Sounds like a pretty hopeless state of affairs. But when you really think about it, in the big scheme of things, it's a reminder of just how much we need God's grace. When we look at our hearts for what they really, truly are, the scary and dark and sinful things that at their core they truly are, It makes God's grace shine even bigger and shine even brighter than it ever did before. This reminds us that lust and trying to be more like Christ and striving for the spiritual growth, it's not just about us quitting things cold turkey. It's not just about developing good habits. It's not just about isolating our eyes or isolating our minds from the things that so often trip us up. It goes deeper than that because it's an issue of the heart and we need the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts. And that's something that we cannot do on our own. It's something that we are completely dependent upon God for. Marriage matters to God. Sex matters to God. And adultery is not just a physical act. It is a problem of the heart that every single one of us will wrestle with and every single one of us will deal with. But not only that, Paul takes the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of adultery and sexual immorality and lust, all of these things. He takes these teachings and he says, you know, even more than that, This problem of adultery, this problem of lust, it's more than just an issue of your own spiritual health. It's more than just an issue of the health of your own marriage. It goes even deeper than that because Paul shows in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that our view of sex, 
our marriages can have a positive or negative impact on the witness of the church. You know, that goes back to what we talked about earlier. The confusion that exists in our society today about what sex is and what marriage is and what these things are all about. It's the responsibility of us as God's people to shine as lights in the society that has so much debate and so much confusion and so many questions and so much disagreement. So how do we do that? As followers of Jesus, how do we shine light into the world around us when it comes to the topics of sex and marriage? Well, I would argue that it's not just about passing laws because it's an issue of the heart. It's not about us acting shocked when people who don't know Christ act like people who don't know Christ. It really shouldn't be surprising to us. It's not to protest. It's not to get defensive. It's not to become bitter. It's not to isolate ourselves from the big bad world and all the horrible sin that exists in our society. That's not the answer at all if we want to shine as lights. The answer is to be examples of what godly marriages look like, of what godly views of sex truly are. It's introducing people to Christ Showing them that they can find their identity in him, not in their sexual orientation, not in their desire for approval from the opposite sex. You can find your identity in Christ. That's what we do. And so we take the gospel out into the world, especially to those people who keep looking for fulfillment that sex and marriage can't ever truly offer. And maybe more than anything, It's about us remembering the grace that God has shown us and never forgetting where we once were as God's people. Because all of us, we're guilty of adultery too. Look at Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Hosea is a famous prophet, maybe an infamous prophet, depending on how you look at it. But Hosea was given the command from God to go and marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him, a woman of ill repute. And so Hosea did that. And the whole idea is that God tells Hosea, hey, your relationship with this woman who's going to be unfaithful to you, that's going to tell the people around you a little bit about my relationship with my people, the people who I have called to myself. And we read in Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I don't even like raisins. I don't know why that's in here. Verse two. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without effort or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You and I, as followers of Jesus... No matter how healthy our marriages are, no matter what our views of sex may be, we must never forget that we aren't a whole lot different from those people who have committed the sin of adultery. Because we, too, are adulterers. 
We were created in God's image with the sole purpose of glorifying him. Yet, sin causes us to abandon the only one worthy of our worship. And this can be said of people who don't know Christ yet and people who do know Christ. We are so often tempted to let our eyes wander and go after other things when we really should be dedicated to the one God who saved us. And we see here that Hosea goes and he pays a price to redeem his spouse. You know, I'd imagine that'd be a hard thing to do, to go and pay a price to redeem someone who has wronged you, to redeem someone who has abandoned you, to redeem someone who has committed adultery against you, the shame that would go into that. Talk about swallowing pride, but that's exactly what God did for us. We have abandoned him. We have gone off to other things that draw our eyes and draw our hearts and draw our minds. And yet God paid a price to redeem us to him. And it was more than the price that Hosea paid. It was the price of his son. His body was broken and his blood was shed for adulterers like me, for adulterers like you, for every single one of us. And it's a humbling thought to remember. And what's even more humbling is that as adulterers, people who don't deserve God's love, people who don't deserve God's favor, we continue to find grace. In the hymn, Come Thou Fount, there seems to be some hitting on this theme, this idea of adultery, this idea of wandering from God. And a few of the lines say this, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy course above. Every single one of us, as we talk about these issues, as we take a stand in the world around us to shine as lights for biblical views of marriage and biblical views of sex, we are called to be reminded every single day that we are no better than the people who wrestle with this. We are no better than the people who wrestle with those questions of what sex is all about and what marriage is all about. And we're called to share that grace and extend that same grace to those very people. Those people who really don't deserve it because guess what? We didn't deserve it either. So we extend that grace. We tell people what marriage is. We tell people what sex is. And we show them that it can ultimately find joy and ultimately find God-glorifying marriages and God-glorifying sex only when we do it according to his design. And that is a privilege, and that is an honor. And so we show people what that grace is. We extend it to them in hopes that we might stick out and that they might learn a thing or two about the God who saved us, the God who is faithful to us, even when we are faithless in our covenant with him. Let's pray. Father, again, so many of us have been burned by this issue of adultery. So many of us have felt the guilt or the pain or the betrayal 
or the heartache, and we've seen the collateral damage that it can cause, just tearing apart people's lives brick by brick. But God, we know that we too are prone to that, that we're not better than anyone else who is guilty of this sin, because we know the state of our hearts apart from you. We know how dark they really can be. And so, God, we rejoice in the fact that through our darkness, that through our sin, your grace becomes more and more radiant every single day. The better we know ourselves, the more amazed we are by you. And God, we thank you for that. God, I pray that whatever situations we're dealing with right now, in our marriages, with sex, God, that we can submit every part of our lives to you, even the most intimate and sensitive parts. That we can submit every part of our lives to the lordship of your son. That we can recommit ourselves to our spouses. That we can recommit ourselves to you. God, we're grateful that even though we don't deserve it, you sent your son to die for us. To pay the price to redeem us, even though we aren't worth, worthy of redeeming. And we're grateful. God, we love you. I pray that as we go from here in just a few minutes, that, that our marriages will honor you. We'll be an example to those who don't know you. And we'll be some semblance of hope to those around us. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Now, with the response to this, we're going to have some of our elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk to you, happy to pray with you. Maybe you're someone who is guilty of adultery, and they'd be happy to pray with you about that. I would encourage you to repent, to reconcile with God and reconcile with your spouse, because you are not beyond God's grace. You are not beyond God's forgiveness. You don't have to live a life saddled with guilt. I would encourage you to do that. Maybe if you're a victim, I would encourage you to forgive, as hard as that sounds, and as easy as it is for me to stand up here and say that to you. Come to Christ and find healing. Maybe you're married. I challenge you to recommit yourself to marriage and be belligerent against that temptation of lust, asking God to continue working on your heart day by day. Maybe you're unmarried. Understand the importance of sex and wait to have it until you enter the covenant of marriage, if and when that time comes. Maybe you're confused about what this all means and what this plays for you in your life. Maybe you're confused about your identity and your sex life. You're confused about where your marriage is at. I'd encourage you to find your identity in Christ, not in sexual orientation, not on who you're attracted to, but in Christ alone. And I would challenge every single one of us that we would recommit to our spouses, that we would recommit to God, that we would recommit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the church and the witness that we have in the world around us. So again, if you have those questions, if you have those struggles, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk to you, happy to pray with you, happy to introduce you to Christ, the one who will be faithful to you at all times because he is the perfect covenant keeper, even though we so often fail. So talk to one of them.